Peter, I appreciate Dave leading us through worship this morning and, and your thought of, I am not skilled to understand. Uh, I was like, wow, that resonates with me. We, we've made it here all through Romans up to Romans chapter 9. Now that's where we are today. And if any of you have any familiarity with Romans, you recognize that chapter 9 is really kind of challenging to understand. And so I really appreciate that. I was like, that's exactly how I felt this week. I am not skilled to understand what's going here. So, uh, but you know what? We trust the Lord and uh, we'll just walk into it this morning and see what he has for us. So uh, I'll go ahead and pray and then we'll go into uh, the message here. So thank you, Lord. Uh, Thank you, God. We're honored to be in your presence. An all-powerful, loving God who created the universe has welcomed us into his presence. And so this morning, Lord, we just want to, we want to hear from you. And God, when we look at this passage, and it, it, it is complex and challenging. But God, we know you're right there in it. And you've got something to say to each one of us right here, right where we're at. And so, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for your grace. As we sang about this morning, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to live inside us as a result of receiving the free gift of salvation. And God, we can worship you for that, Lord. So help us and guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought it would be worthwhile before we sort of jump in in Romans 9 to review Romans 8, which is maybe a little bit easier to understand, and we kind of got to that last week. Um, And so I thought I'd just hit some of the highlights from what we talked about last week because it really informs, I think, what's happening in chapter 9. Sort of one of the points we talked about last week was we were talking about God's love. And God's love is unbreakable, unshakable, unstoppable. And one of those key points is to realize that God's love, although it has no end, and I think we can understand that, it also has no beginning because God is timeless. And as we saw the scriptures that say, I've always loved you. And when God is outside of space and time, always means always from before time. And so that's like, wow, that's an amazing thing to sort of get our heads around and start to wrestle with that. Another thing we looked at last week was this idea that the brokenness of the universe cannot defeat God. The universe is broken. We all agree that. We all see it. All the sin around us, all the bad things and the challenges and the stuff in our own lives and everywhere. But it can't defeat God. God is not defeated. Paul says, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can drive a wedge. Our own sin cannot drive a wedge between us and God when we've received the free gift of salvation. And so we talked about how God is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. It says that God is love, but God is also all-powerful. And so in his love, he's made this allowance for us to be able to choose him. And yet in his power, it means he's also chosen those of us who are believers. And we're going to talk quite a bit more about this concept today. His love allows us to choose him. His love allows us to choose him because we're not robots, right? And yet his power is there and it's expressed in his choice of us. And then our choices don't give us some sort of power over God. So we're going to talk about that more today because Paul talks about that more in Romans chapter 9. Now, 
I could mention before, Romans 9 is really one of the more challenging passages in the entire New Testament. Um, And because it's so challenging, it's one of those things that's been debated and it's been taught and it's been argued and it's been wrestled with by a lot of really, really smart people and maybe a lot of really, really not so smart people for 2,000 years, right? And so uh, on Friday, I had the privilege of having a phone conversation with uh, John Hopler. He's the, the national director of Great Commission Churches. And he was asking how my weekend was, my week was going, my weekend was shaping up. And I told him, well, I'm teaching on Romans 9 this weekend. He said, well, good. Let us know when you're done so we can listen to what you had to say and solve the dilemma that is Romans 9. From <laughs> it was like, no pressure there. The director of the church is asking me to, you know, he, he was joking, of course. <laughs> I'm not going to solve it. (laughs) I'm not going to solve it for you today. I don't think I can. I'm not skilled to understand. And I can't do that. But as with anything, I want us to always remember, we always want to hold in mind when we look at Scripture and we look at a challenging passage of Scripture and we go, man, I'm probably not going to be able to sort this all out. We go, well, let's try to understand Scripture that's maybe unclear in light of Scripture that is clear. Right? We always want to understand things that are unclear in light of that which is clear. And so we can hold on to that which is clear, which we talked about last week in Romans 8, is that God is love and God is powerful. We can hold on to that. That's very clear from the passage. So today we'll just dive into this. And if we can just hold on to that simple foundational understanding of who God is, I think it'll help us maybe get a little bit more understanding. And again, we're not going to solve the dilemmas and the challenges and the thoughts, but you know what? It's good to wrestle with this and take it home and say, wow, how how does this work and how does it work? And we can come to a place of, of some peace in wrestling with that. And just one little bit of good news, just a little tease. This is going to be, we're going to do this for three weeks, and we're going to go through Romans 9, 10, and 11 in three weeks. And you go, wow, man, this is going to be hard and wrestling and challenging, and it is. But guess what? It's so fun. You get to the end of Romans chapter 11, and Paul himself says, God is so big, it's really impossible for us to even understand this. (laughs) So Paul, the guy who's written about this, is going to tell us, hey, it's okay. Praise the Lord that he's so big that we can't really get a grasp on all of this. So we'll be there in two weeks. So, speaking of Paul, let's sort of start with this thing about Paul, right? Who, who is Paul? Was Paul, was he just like a sort of normal guy? No, Paul was a really smart dude. He was really smart. Um, in Philippians 3, he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee, which meant, unlike me, he went to school and studied all this theological stuff. And he spent his life in training under other rabbis, And he got a real understanding. So he's a really smart guy when it comes to these principles, these understandings of who God is. And so there he is in in chapter 8, which, you know, of course he didn't have chapters, but what he's writing there, what we know is Romans 8, it's this very smart exposition, and yet he knows he's going to give that, and then there's people are going to go, hold on, objection. Wait, Paul, objection. And he's smart enough, he's like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and address those objections before you can even ask them. And that's what I think a lot of what Romans 9 is, is these answering sort of these objections. He asks and answers these questions. So today, he's going to, I think we're going to look at how he answers, and I'll give my best, best shot at how I think he's answering these objections. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll do that today, these four objections. And then next week, we're going to talk about Israel and God. And how that sort of fits together. 
And then the third week, we're going to talk more about how the rest of us who aren't Jewish, those who are Gentiles, essentially, how we fit into God's plan. So that's where we're going. So that being said, we're going to do these four objections today. And so we'll start with the first one. And the objection number one is, has God broken his promise? Has God broken his promise? All of this happened. Has God broken his promise? So we'll talk about that. <coughs> I'll go ahead and read the passage here. We have it on the screen. You're welcome to follow along as you go. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so we'll stop there and we'll keep going here in a little bit, but let's just go back to that background on Romans. Right? Paul is writing this letter to a church of people in Rome, and this church is made up of people who claim their descent from the nation of Israel, these Jews, and a bunch of people who would just be Gentiles, basically everybody else, like most of the rest of us, right? So Paul's writing this letter to both, and there's been this tension all along. Here we are in the early church, and there's this tension between Jew and Gentile. And we see it popping up in other places in the New Testament, right? We went through a series on Galatians a couple years ago, and there's this point where Paul and, and Peter, there's this conflict, and Paul is confronting Peter about, hey, you're kind of slipping back into this old law, and you're not really living under the gospel, and it has to do with how Jews and Gentiles are relating to each other. And we see this in letters that are written within the church in Acts and other places. And so I think in this first part of the passage, it seems pretty clear, Paul's talking straight to the Jews, right? He's like, let's talk about the Jews. Jews. <laughs> let's talk about your history and what's going on here. And so maybe for us, because we maybe don't get it, because we're not, most of us probably aren't Jews, right? Well, what, what is this promise? What, what promise? God broke in his promise. What promise? Well, let's look at what that is. And we go back and we can see that promise in Jeremiah 33, 31, 33. And it's other places in the, New Te in the Old Testament. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God makes this promise. He makes this promise to the nation. And he says, you'll be my people. Right? At least that's what it seems like. 
And so the question in the mind of the Jewish believers in Rome, right, they're going, okay, all this has happened, and the, the Jews, they, they killed Jesus, and he came back to life, and now there's these Gentiles are being brought into the church, and we don't really understand, and so they come up with this kind of question. And I summarize it this way, God promised us, he promised us that we were his people, that we were the chosen, but it seems as if our nation has rejected Jesus, and that the Gentiles are now chosen as well. So does that mean God broke his promise? Can you, can you see how people are asking that, how that objection would come up? And so Paul has an answer, and his answer is, no, God hasn't broken his promise. And the reason he can say no is because he's saying, hey, look, you guys have a misunderstanding of epic proportions about what God was really promising. You don't really understand what he was promising. And he goes into it this way. He says, you know what? Abraham had two kinds of descendants, right? He had descendants of the flesh, and those are human children. And those children had children, and children had children, and children. And, you know, you have children by the flesh, and those are offspring. He goes, well, that's one kind. But what God was really talking about was children of the promise, which are spiritual offspring, which are those who share the faith. We even go back, all the way back to Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6. And God makes this promise to Abraham. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous in God's sight not because of who he was or because of how he was born but because of his faith. And so there's this concept of, oh, nope, it's not just, it's not physical children, it's the spiritual children. Abraham's spiritual descendants are those who share in his faith, not the ones who share in his blood, right? And so Paul answers these objections with these Jewish examples, right, of Abraham and Sarah and their son, right, Isaac, and then with uh, Rebekah and her sons, right, Jacob and Esau, right? I love my little Bible, my Sunday school pictures up there. Paul uses these, and he's speaking again to the Jews, and they go, oh, okay, we sort of understand what's going on with these people. And he's using these examples to say, hey, look, God is, God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He's saying, you know what? Look at those examples, and it seems clear, yeah, God has made choices about these people before they were even born. He's made these choices and he's made these promises. And now, if you think about that and you go, wait, God made choices about people before they were born? That seems kind of weird. I don't know if any of you are kind of in business or in your, in your workplaces. Have you ever heard, you know, somebody comes up with an idea and you use that idea for a while. It goes along and it's just not working out. And someone will say something like, well, that idea was doomed from the beginning. Right? Have you ever heard that idea that that said in business? That idea was doomed. It's almost this sense of, well, if that thing was so doomed from the beginning, why do we even have that idea? Why was it even there? Right? And that sort of plays into this concept of, well, if God has made these choices about people beforehand, like, wh- why do we even have that? Right? Why are those people even there? Why is it like that? We don't really understand. And that's a good question. And we'll talk a little bit more about Esau in a few minutes, but. I think the point Paul is making the point Paul is making here is this that God is all powerful and being all powerful means a couple things. First, it means God is in control and we are not. That could be a hard thing to sort of stomach. We go, I feel like I ought to be able to understand, but we need to step back and say, I'm not in control. God is in control. 
He really is all powerful. I really don't have any powerful power, right? Second thing is, well, God is actually outside of space and time. By, by definition, for him to be God, he has to have really created space and time, and so he's outside of that. And, whoa, that's a really difficult thing to understand, and I'm not sure we can even really get our heads completely around that since we're inside space and time. And then I think Paul is also saying this, and this is the most important thing, is that God loves us. God loves us. You ever hear people make that argument of, oh, well, God made the universe and then he just sort of let it go. They call it the clockmaker. It's like he made a clock and wound it up and it just let it go. And I go, but that doesn't fit with the character of God because God loves us. God is love and he loves us. And being all-powerful includes that in there. And in that love, like we talked about last week, God grants us choices. And yet, when he grants us those choices, our choices are going to fit into his plan. And so we can look at this, kind of to kind of answer this objection. The reaction of the nation of Israel to the Messiah, to Jesus, was a choice. They made that choice. But their choice did not confound God's plan nor cause him to break his promise. And the main reason he did break his promise is because his promise wasn't just to these people. It was to those who would be of faith. It was the spiritual children. His promise already accounted for spiritual children. So that leads us to the second objection, which is, you know, isn't God unjust? Isn't God unjust? We'll see what Paul says here, starting in verse 14. He says, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's an objection someone would raise, right? And he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so you can see, and probably a lot of us have this objection sometimes too, if God chooses some to be saved and some not to be saved, isn't that unfair? It seems like a really reasonable question, doesn't it? Isn't that unfair? God chooses some to be saved and some who aren't? Well, that doesn't seem fair, but it stems from an error. And that error is, once again, you're falsely presuming that he's not both all-powerful and loving. He's both of these things, right? If you kind of presume one and not the other, it's a problem, right? So if God was only all-powerful and not loving, then no one would be saved, right? No one deserves it. Romans 3.23, how many people have sinned? All, right? All have sinned. So no one would be saved because nobody deserves it. But if you just say, no, God is just loving. He's not all-powerful. He's just loving. And so he's just going to save everybody. Well, then everyone would be saved, but nobody, still nobody deserves it. And we'd go, that's not fair. That's not just. That's not right. So how does this all fit together? Well, I think we need to go back to that passage that Paul's quoting from in Exodus chapter 33. And so Moses is having this interaction with God, and he says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, right? And so in this story, the way it happens is Moses asks for this and God grants it and Moses gets in the cleft of the rock and God passes by and he sees him, right? So that's the story. But I think it's interesting to note here, right? What's emphasized that God's going to show? His mercy and his compassion, right? We sort of feel like, shouldn't it say his mercy and his judgment? I will, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will judge those whom I will judge. He doesn't say that. He says mercy and compassion, and so there's this emphasis on that characteristic of God. Now, why is that important? I think it's important because of this. An all-powerful God must be able to choose how he demonstrates his love, how he expresses his love. He has to. See, if God can only be loving in response to what we do, right? If God says, I will only love you if you exhibit love to me. I will only be with you. I will only reach out to you. I will only care for you if you first care for me. Who has the power in that situation? We do. Whether we get to turn to God or not then he's not all-powerful, right? So an all-powerful God must be able to choose how to express his love. Now, I know this is a challenging concept, and I'm not sure I completely always get it on, like, wow, i got a lot of doubts on this sort of thing. I really appreciate something John Piper says about this. He says, God's words in Romans 9.15 mean that it is an essential part of God's glory that he be unbound in choosing the beneficiaries of his mercy. That is, he would be less glorious indeed. He would not be fully God if he were under obligation to any particular human distinctive. He would be dethroned if his bestowal of mercy were dependent on anything outside himself. If he waited to see how men will or run before he showed mercy, he would be limited by them and therefore not all glorious. As Exodus 33:19 shows, his glory is his freedom from all human claims. So that's something I think for us to think about and wrestle with. And we go, okay, how does this answer that question about God's justice? How is he not being unfair? Well, the answer to that is Pharaoh. My little action figure of Pharaoh. He looks like kind of a tough guy there. Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And Paul says, so then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so we all remember this story about uh, Pharaoh, right? You know, Charlton Heston goes to Yule Brenner, and he's like, let my people go. Oh, wait, that was the movie. You know, Moses goes, he goes, let my people go, right? And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let them go. And they go back and forth, and the plagues all get thrown in there. We all understand that story. And so let's look at a couple of these things here, right? Exodus 4.21, God talking about Pharaoh, he says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Okay, so God is like involved in this choice. And yet, in Exodus 5, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let the people go? And so I think we can see, do you see the two things happening at once here? God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and yet Pharaoh also chose to have a hard heart. And think back to that story. Did not God give Pharaoh a whole bunch of chances to have an unhard heart and to let the people go? 
Yeah, he did, right? Think of all those plagues. We all know the plagues, oh, the locusts and the flies and the frogs and the angel of death, all those things. Before each one, it was like, hey, why don't you let my people go? Here's your chance. Repent. And he said no each time. And so God gave all these, and you go, how could God, we say God's not merciful? He's given Pharaoh all these chances. And so this is where we can go back to Esau, too, and it's sort of that same thing. When Paul's talking about Esau, he's quoting from Malachi 1, and God says, Yet I've loved Jacob, Jacob, but Esau I've hated. And so we can see God was at work here. It says in the passage, God had ordained before he was born that this was going to happen. And we go, well, that doesn't seem fair. And yet when we look back at the story of Esau, even Esau, too, had the chances. In Genesis 25, Esau comes in, he's got the birthright, man. He owns it. And he's like, that looks like some good soup, Jacob. (laughs) And he trades his birthright for the soup. Well, that was his choice, right? God didn't make him do it, didn't hold him down and pin him down and, you know, rub his head and say, you got to do it. No, it was his choice. So God gives us these choices. And so we see even in the midst of these things, there are these choices going on. And even in these stories from the Old Testament, we see God's determination and man's choice at work together. And so now we try to put this into our current situation. Okay, we're talking about the Old Testament with this, but so many of us, and probably many of you here, and I know I've asked this question too, will ask that question, that very question of doubt about the good news. And what is that question? That question is, what happens to those people who never hear the gospel? What about all those people in the world and all of history who've never heard about Jesus Christ? Right? My, my sweet daughter asked me that question this week. Right? I've asked that question. Many of you, maybe some of you are even sitting here today and you're like, yeah, I have that question too. What happens to those people? And there seems to be this dilemma. But if we think about it and we go, okay, no, God is in control here and God is just. And this works out. Somehow it works out. And so I would even submit this. If God is all-powerful, and if God is all-powerful, could he not have placed people in times, and he goes, that person's not going to turn to me. No matter what I do, their cho- that's going to be their choice. So I'm going to place them in some place where it's not important whether they're going to hear about the gospel or not. If he knew that was going to be the case, couldn't he have done that? I think he could. And ultimately, I would say this about that question. Is not God bigger than geography and history? Yes. He is. He is. And he's just. And so if God is just, I think that brings us into this third objection. That third objection is, why does God find fault in me? If he's ordained it this way, how can he find fault in me? Paul continues there in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? And there's some complexity there in that passage. But the base question is, why does God find fault in me? If he made me this way, if he hardened my heart, why does he find fault in me? And I think Paul gives us three reasons. The first reason is, we have been given the choice. 
As much as we may say, oh, God has done that, we see that with Esau and we see that with Pharaoh. We even see it in our own lives. Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. Right? So we see we have a choice. We have been given a choice. That is clear. That is clear scripture. Second thing we see is that God is perfectly just by nature. He is perfectly just. He's not just mostly just. He's not like the American legal system where it's like, yeah, you get it right most of the time. No. He always gets it right. Deuteronomy 32.4 His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God is perfectly just. Nothing gets by him. Nothing gets by him. No injustice is going to make it. The third thing Paul tells us is that he makes righteous and fair decisions. I love Psalm 25, 8 there from the message. God is fair and just. He corrects the misdirected and sends them in the right direction. The comfort here, the justice, is this. Why does God find fault in me? Because I have fault. Right? All have sinned. Yep, me. I've sinned. Every single one of us would go, yep. Why does God find fault? Because I have fault. And so there's a comfort. There should be a comfort in this, right? This, this question of what happens to those who never hear the gospel, right? And there's some good answers. But one place I always start when somebody asks me that question is I step back and I say, okay, is God perfectly just? The answer is yes, right? By definition, he's perfectly just. Well, I say, well, in that case, whether I understand it or not, at some point, we're all going to make it to the end. The the world's going to come to the end. The Bible tells us that. It's all going to come. It's going to be rolled up like a scroll. It's all going to be done. And we're going to be in heaven or hell. And there's going to be nobody in heaven who shouldn't be there. And there's going to be nobody in hell who shouldn't be there. And there'll be no disagreement because we'll go... Yeah, it's just. And so there should be some comfort in that for us. Where we go, oh, God always makes right and fair decisions. And so the end, I think, Paul's answer to this objection is this. It doesn't matter what I feel. What matters is the truth. God is all-powerful. God is loving. And God is perfectly just. And he's given each of us the chance to accept or reject the gospel. And so sometimes I think when we go back to that question, we need to say, am I asking that question, what happens to those people who never hear, those people in the deep, dark jungles of Africa and history? When we ask that question, are we asking that because we genuinely wonder? Are we trying to set up some sort of obstacle to keep us from dealing with the fact that I myself have now heard about the gospel and God expects me to make a choice about it? That's always a question. There's, there's good, you can have good-natured philosophical questions and wonder those things, but at some point, when you stand before God, it doesn't matter what the people in the deep, dark jungle did. What matters is what you did. When I stand there, it's going to matter what I did with it. He's given me that chance to accept or reject the gospel. So we can see here Paul's really object, uh, addressed these three objections. First, you know, he said, did God break his promise? No, God didn't break his promise. Was God unjust? No, God is perfectly fair. Why does God find fault in me? Well, he finds fault in me because I'm guilty. And yet God in his mercy has given us a way out. So now the final objection Paul addresses here in chapter 9 is this. Doesn't God just love the Jews as chosen people? 
And so he talks about this. They're starting in 25. He says, Indeed, he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, that the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so I think this question kind of ties back to that first question, right? They're coming to this conclusion based upon the same assumption as the first question that God chose a nation of physical people, not a nation of spiritual people. But I think Paul goes further here and he kind of hits it home. Again, he's writing to these Jews and he's like, okay, we'll just even go back to our Jewish scriptures and point this out where God has said, no, he doesn't just love the Jews, right? And so he starts there in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. <clears throat> in other words, God's love is not just reserved for one nation of people. And Paul's saying, look, God said that through one of our prophets. Did you see that? And then he gets to Isaiah. Through, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In other words, not all physical descendants of Abraham will automatically be God's children. There's faith. There's a choice. That's how God has set it up. And so the summary answer to this objection is that God never said that. Doesn't God just love the Jews? No, because he never said that. He never said that. And so we have to ask the question, who does God say he loves? If he didn't say that, who does he say? Well, <clears throat> let's just go straight to the mouth of God himself, Jesus Christ. In a verse we all know, and it's right there in Mission 1 of Memory Madness, John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Who does God love according to this verse? God so loved the world. Mankind, people, you, me, that's who he loved. And so according to this, who does God choose? Those who believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Whoever believes, whoever chooses him will not perish. Have eternal life. God doesn't love only the Jews. He loves everybody. And he chooses those who believe him. And we go, wow, how does that work? I don't know. It's hard, right? I'm not skilled to understand. Get to the end of this and I go, I'm not skilled to understand. But here's one thought. As I thought it through and I prayed about it and I wrestled with all of this this week and last week and trying to figure out where it is, this is the thought I came to at the end. <clears throat> if God is all-powerful and perfectly just, and I believe that he is, and therefore, he's not obligated by anything I say or do or choose. He's not obligated by it. <clears throat> then how wonderful and awe-inspiring that he should extend the promise of reconciliation through Jesus Christ to me. He said, I'll reach out to you. I'll save you. He didn't say, I'm going to save rainbows and unicorns. He said, I'm going to save you. And here's how. Here's the promise of reconciliation. Here's my son. And I should be trembling in fear and reverent worship of the God who's done that. Because he's under no obligation to do that whatsoever. Amen? 
So whether you fully understand this, whether you understand the ins and the outs of all of this, and I don't, and that's probably clear after this 30 minutes. I don't understand it, and you probably don't understand it, but our, our response, I believe our response to God when we read this should be, praise the Almighty God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, we praise you. God, we don't really understand. In a lot of ways, it's like, wow, this is challenging, and we're sitting here inside of space and time and our lives, and it's broken. And it's hard to understand, and yet, God, it seems like what Paul is making very clear to us is that you are all-powerful. Your power is so great, your love has no beginning for us and no end. And your justice is perfect, and because of your justice, there is fault inside every single one of us. Every single one of us has sin and poor choices and wrong thoughts and wrong thinking and dealing with the brokenness of our life in illegitimate ways. And justice would say we shouldn't have any relationship with you. You should exact justice upon us and punishment, and it would be right and it would be good, and yet... You've offered your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place as a free gift for us that we could receive that free gift. And if we receive that free gift, then we can be reconciled with you. And if we're reconciled with you, we get to spend eternity with you and leave behind this broken universe. God, help us to understand that. God, in, his, in the midst of not understanding, help us to see that you are great and mighty and powerful and awesome. And yet, you love us. And you offer us again and again and again the chance to be right with you. The chance to embrace your mercy and your love. You offer that to us. And God, I imagine every single one of us, wherever we're at in this room, whether we've received that gift or not, if we haven't received that gift, we might be going, well, am I one of those people who God has hardened his heart or her heart? And it doesn't have to be that way. We can just receive that free gift and say, yeah, I received the free gift. I want to be reconciled to you. I invite you into my life, God. God, I thank you for that free gift. God, we worship you in reverence. We worship you in spirit and in truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.